Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. There are two dimensions to love, two very distinct, very significant kinds of love. One of them we could call the pleasant love, the pleasurable love, the love that makes you feel good, that makes you feel content and satisfied, full and complete. There's another love, maybe even more crucial, more important, more essential to relationships. And this we could call the compelling love, the kind of love that doesn't let you be content, it motivates you, it compels you to get up and do something. It's a love that compels action, and it can be described more as commitment or devotion, responsibility to the one you love. And that kind of love is probably the core and the heart of a relationship. This was the topic and the theme for a lecture at the Chabad House of Minnetonka in Minnesota, and the conversation went like this. And it is, in fact, the 14th of Kislev, the anniversary of the Rebbe, when he married the daughter of the previous Rebbe. And by doing so, he got himself into a position where he would become the next Rebbe, and for that we are very grateful. The Rebbetzin, Chaya Mushka, gave us a Rebbe. Not only by marrying him, and not even by allowing him to belong completely to the Chassidim, she literally gave him to us. The name Chayamushka, by the way, kind of a strange-sounding name. Where does this name come from? Actually, the name Mushka is the same as the English musk, the perfume. In the Beis Hamikdash, in the temple, there were, of course, the sacrifice offerings, but then there were also the incense offerings, the burning of the incense. And the incense that was burnt in the temple was composed of 11 ingredients. Ten of them came from plants, and one, the 11th, came from an animal. Now, what perfume comes from an animal? Musk. In the Aramaic, in the Talmud, this ingredient or this perfume is called mushak. And I guess uh, sometime in Russia it became Mushka. That was her name, and she gave us a Rebbe. I want to tell you a few stories. First of all, she was the daughter of the previous Rebbe, and I can't imagine, can't begin to imagine, what it's like, what it means to grow up in the house of a Rebbe, where your father is the Rebbe, your mother is the Rebbetzin, your grandfather was the Rebbe before that, can't begin to imagine what that was like. Now, when people petitioned the Rebbe in 1950 to accept the leadership and to become the next Rebbe, he didn't want to do it. He was horrified even at the suggestion. He refused over and over again. For a year, he kept refusing, until finally the Rebbe said to him, my father gave his life to the spreading and the teachings of Hasidus. You can't do this to my father. He put in so much work, you can't let it fall apart. So she not only allowed him to become the Rebbe, which was a great sacrifice on her part, she actually pushed him. And that was probably the decisive factor in the Rebbe's decision. The Rebbetzin, in her later years, we will get to the subject. This is all introduction. In her later years, she would go out for drives down to the waterfront, to the beach. One time, the driver was taking her down to the ocean, and the road that they usually took, the route that they usually took, was closed for repairs or something, and they had to take a detour. So they were going through this other road, an unfamiliar road, and there was this one house where there were some police cars in the driveway, there was a commotion going on, people milling around. They passed the house, and after a few moments, the Rebison said, turn around, please, let's go back to the house and see what was going on there. They drive back, 
and she sends the driver to find out what's happening. And he comes back and he tells her that the family is being displaced. They're being evicted because they hadn't paid their rent. So the Rebetzin tells him to find out how big or how much the bill is, what it is they need to pay in order to be able to stay in the house. And he came back and he told the Rebetzin the amount. And the Rebetzin wrote out a check, paid off the bill, and resolved the problem. The driver was amazed. And in the car, she explained to him, this is her explanation, my father taught me that you never see anything unless you are meant to, unless it is relevant to you. The reason we had to take an alternative route and drive past that scene must be because I could do something about it. Otherwise, why would I have seen it? And so she went back and fixed it. This is the kind of person we're talking about. Now, the story of the 14th of Kislev, the Rebbe's anniversary, the story goes something like this. There's a family in South America where the father is a community leader, very active in community affairs. And so one of the rabbis from New York met with him to discuss setting up a Chabad center there. They finish discussing, and the man says to the rabbi, when you go back to New York, I have to ask you for this favor. My daughter left home. She ran off to America. All we know is that she is someplace in New York, and we're very worried about her. Could you track her down and see what's happening? Now, this is New York. Not easy to find someone in New York. He asked a few questions. He asked some people. He found her. She was living in an urban commune. He invites her for Shabbos. She comes. She likes it. She comes a second time. And eventually becomes a regular visitor to the house. After about a year, she tells the rabbi that she met a guy, a boy from Israel, who had also just recently developed an interest in a more observant life. They were studying together and they wanted to get married. And of course, they want him to officiate. He agreed on the condition that they would observe Shabbos and kosher and mikvah. And they agreed to those conditions and they went looking for a date for their wedding. They picked a date sometime in December at a hotel in Manhattan. In the meantime, the rabbi did a little research on the boy's family. He found out that the boy's father was a survivor from Warsaw, and as a young boy, came to Israel very bitter, anti-religious, anti-God, anti-everything. Didn't teach his children anything Jewish at all. They lived on a kibbutz, and the boy didn't discover Judaism until he came to America, and everything was new to him. So he tells the rabbi that his father would be coming to the wedding, but that he was very uncomfortable with anything Jewish, and that he should not be asked to participate in blessings or in uh, the, uh, the practices, the, the, the customs. He was not going to do it. Forget it. The wedding was on a Sunday. The rabbi, who was going to officiate, wrote a note to the Rebbe, telling the Rebbe that he was going to be doing the wedding, who the bride was, who the groom was, when the wedding was going to be, and asking for a bracha for the wedding. Now that day, the Sunday of the wedding, Sunday morning, the Rebbe went to the cemetery. The Rebbe would go at least once a month, usually more often. And he would take all the notes and letters that people had written to him asking for blessings, and he would read them all at the gravesite of his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. While the Rebbe was there, and he has this, this shopping bag full of notes and letters and papers, he stood there most of the day just reading these notes and taking care of business. While he was there, standing in front of his father-in-law, 
he wouldn't do anything uh, unrelated. He wouldn't get distracted. He wouldn't speak. So when he needed something taken care of, he would jot down a note and hand it to his uh, driver, and the driver would get on the car phone and take care of whatever had to be taken care of. That Sunday, the Rebbe wrote a little note to the driver, and the note said approximately as follows. If I'm not mistaken, the Rebbe says, if I'm not mistaken, which means he's not mistaken. If I'm not mistaken, this young man's grandfather who was a rabbi in Warsaw, was at my wedding. The Rebbe was married in Warsaw in 1929. And he gave me a present, a wedding present. It was a copy of a book that he had authored, a holy book. The book is in my office. It's on the right side of the door as you walk in. And it would be a good idea to take it with you and have it with you under the chuppah. And then the Rebbe writes, And notice the amazing divine providence that they picked a date in December that turns out to also be the 14th day of Kislev, my anniversary, 50 years ago. The rabbi went to the Rebbe's office, he got the book, took it with him in a bag to the wedding. Under the chuppah, the bride asks him to say a few words. He was taken a little by surprise because it's not our custom to do that. So what is he going to say? Well, when all else fails, you tell a story. So he takes out the safer, he takes out the book, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you the story about this book. The Rebbe is at the cemetery this morning at the oil, and he's taking care of what a Rebbe takes care of at the cemetery. And he sends his blessings to this wedding, and he remembers the young man's grandfather, who was at his wedding, who gave him this book as a present. And the Rebbe is concerned that the grandfather should have the pleasure and the nachas of seeing his grandson married according to the customs of Israel. And so he asked me, to have this safer with me under the chuppah to represent the grandfather so that the grandfather is present through his writings. As he says this, the groom's father storms out of the room. He follows him out into the lobby and he finds him sitting in a phone booth crying like a baby. When he finally calms down, the father says, when I was a little boy, I went to Cheder, back in Warsaw, and I used to read Hebrew, and I used to know how to make a bracha, but I've forgotten everything. You're going to have to take me by the hand and show me what to do. He was a completely new person. So here's the point. The point of it is that there's a certain kind of love a certain kind of empathy or sympathy, a considerateness that we can describe as beautiful because love in general is a beautiful thing. But there's another kind of love that is not only a response to someone or something, but it actually makes things happen. It's a love that causes things to happen. It's not a passive love. It's not just the pleasant love. It's a kind of love that leans towards responsibility, towards commitment. It feels more like devotion than romantic. It's a little hard to pin it down exactly, but usually when we think of love, when we think of a relationship, we're thinking of, of warm feelings, pleasant feelings, which comes from having a pleasant opinion about the other person, thinking highly of the other person. But the general sense of it, the general feeling is pleasantness. It's a pleasing feeling. And it makes the person 
who is feeling the love, it makes him feel complete, content. It's satisfying. That's a good word. But there's another kind of love, different. This kind of love feels more like devotion than pleasantness, more like we go down together or we don't go at all. It's not such a pleasant feeling, but it's much stronger. It makes things happen. That kind of love compels you to behave a certain way, to do certain things, which the other love would not. So there's a love that reaches a plateau of feeling. You know, a person can say, I've been looking for love. I found the love of my life. Now I am content. I've arrived. There's a fullness. There's a completeness. There's the pleasure of the experience. And there's another kind of love that is maybe opposite in content. It's an urgent love. It makes you want to do something. Now, the story of the Debitson stopping at, in front of the house to find out what was wrong and, and solving the problem, this is not just the pleasant kind of gentle feeling that is fulfilling and satisfying. This is a love that is commitment. It's determination. You can't let it go by, and you make something happen out of love for another human being. This concern that the Rebbe had to recall 50 years earlier who was at his wedding when he has 1,200 letters to take care of just that day alone. And he recalls the grandfather, and he's concerned that the grandfather should be present and enjoy the wedding. And so he suggests that the grandfather be represented by his writings. That's not the kind of love that is a plateau. I love everybody. I'm happy now. No. No, it's different. It's the feeling I have to work for the people I love. I can't let an opportunity go by when I could have done the person a favor and didn't do it. This love is a commitment. And relationship is a commitment. Now, the commitment happens to be, if it's a love relationship, the commitment happens to be pleasurable. Well, it should be pleasurable. But the pleasure is not the relationship. We shouldn't make that mistake. The goal, the objective, is not the pleasure that we get from a relationship. The objective is a relationship. Hopefully a pleasant one, but not only a pleasant one. A relationship has to have both kindness and severity, chesed and gvura. There's got to be a strength to that love as well as a pleasure. And in that way, the relationship is not just an event, it's not just a momentary feeling or even a long-lasting feeling, but a feeling is by its very nature temporary. A relationship, on the other hand, needs permanence more than an event. An event is only an event. A relationship is something more durable. I'm sure you've heard this story, but since you can't make up better stories than the ones you actually experience, it's worth repeating. Here's the story. There was this group of women who were having a problem. They all lived in the same community. They were all friends. They knew each other. And they had a common problem. They shared this problem. What was the problem? The problem was that there was a rabbi in town who was a great teacher. And he was very inspiring. And they went to his classes and were so inspired that they became committed to mitzvahs, to practicing Yiddishkeit. They wanted to keep Shabbos, they wanted to keep kosher, so on. And the problem was that all eight of them, their husbands, were not very happy with this new development. So all eight of them have the same problem, that they have become religious, 
and their husbands were not interested. Unhappy. So we get together, and I ask them, what is the problem? Spell it out. And they said, our husbands don't want to be religious. Well, you really can't blame them for that. Who wants to be religious? What, did you come home and say, want to be religious? And you expect them to say yes? Let's try this again. Tell me again, what is the problem? And they said again, our husbands don't want to be religious. But finally, we broke it down. Your husband doesn't want to keep Shabbos. Well, let's see if I got the picture straight. You come home one day and you say to your husband, you know what? I just learned about Shabbos. It's a holy day. And from now on, we can't go shopping on Shabbos. If that's what you came home and said, if that's what you told your husband, your husband then said, no, you have to go shopping on Shabbos? I don't think so. Let's say you came home and you said, from now on, I'm going to make you special food on Friday night. And what, your husband said no? He got upset? I don't think so. One of the women said, my husband doesn't want to keep kosher. So my question is, what does he know about kosher? You make it kosher, it'll be kosher. He doesn't even have to know about it. She said, no, we need new dishes. If you come home and tell your husband, we need a new set of dishes, I'm bored with the old set, he wouldn't buy you a set of dishes? You think his problem is religion? What is really the problem? Let me describe this from a man's point of view. What exactly is bothering your husbands? You came home one day and not thinking, not ever suspecting that anyone can be uninspired when you are inspired. You came home and you told your husbands that from now on you have to he didn't even hear the rest of the sentence. It didn't matter. He heard the words, have to. And he said, no, I don't. This is my house. What is this all of a sudden? My house, my life, and I have to? I don't have to. Now, if you had said, well, you're right. You don't have to. I'd really like it if you did. Chances are he would have no problem at all. But you said... You have to. So it's not the dishes. It's not the shopping. It's that you change the rules. You introduce new rules into his life. Now, why would anyone want to accept that? But that's not what's really bothering him. What's really bothering him is that you came home inspired. And it was not about him. You came home excited, but it wasn't about him. He's jealous. At home, you've been bored or boring, but you come home from this class and you're all excited. Now, what's going on here? Who is the center of your life? What happened to him? You used to be excited about him. Now, all of a sudden, your excitement in life has nothing to do with him, and that hurts. But that's not really his problem. His problem is much deeper than that. His problem is that if you had come home and said you had met a really good-looking guy who you're attracted to, he would be upset, jealous, angry, and he would fight you on it. But you came home and you said, God wants me to keep kosher. How do you compete with God? This is not fair. It's completely, uh, it's, it's off the board. It's not following the rules of the game. He doesn't know how to handle this, so he gets stubborn. He digs in his heels and just refuses because what else can he do? And that's not his real problem. Let me tell you finally what his real problem is. His real problem is that you came home and said, God said to keep Shabbos, so I have to keep Shabbos. God said to keep kosher, so I have to keep kosher. God said to keep mikvah, 
so you have to get your own bed. And that doesn't bother him that much. What really bothers him is, what if God tells you to dump me altogether? Since I don't cooperate and I'm not religious enough for you, what if God comes to you and says, dump the guy? What would you do? They sat there quietly. <laughs> I said, that's what bothers him. And if you would tell me, I said, I promise not to tell your husbands, just tell me, what would you do? If God told you to dump your husband, what would you do? And they just sat there thinking. <laughs> They're thinking. And I said, what are you thinking? What are you thinking about? If you have to think about this question, if I were your husband, I would be very upset. What are you thinking about? You know, it's like Jack Benny's famous joke, your money or your life, and he says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. But what is there to think about? All right, let's examine it. According to Torah, if God came and said, dump your husband, what should one do? We have two possibilities. We have to find a precedent in Torah so that we know what we're supposed to do. Well, you all know the story. God comes to Avraham, and he says, you know your son, your only son, your favorite son, Yitzchak, bring him up on the altar. And what did Avraham do? He gets up early in the morning, and with gladness of heart, he sets off to do what God had commanded. Now, from this we would learn that if God tells you to dump your husband, what you should do is get up early in the morning and with gladness of heart set off to do what God tells you to do, to dump him. But there's another story. The other story is that God came to Moshe and he said the people are so bad they made a graven image, a golden calf. I'm going to dump them. They got to go. What does Moshe say? Moshe says, if you dump them, dump me too. Erase me from your book. Now from this we would learn that if God comes to a woman and says, dump your husband, or if God comes to a man and says, dump your wife for not being good enough, what should she say? What should he say? He should say, okay, have to obey what God says, but I'm going with him. He gets dumped. I get dumped. So you don't disobey God. You dump him, but you go with him. Now, which of the two stories holds the answer to, to their question. Which one should we follow in this case? Very simply, God didn't say to Avraham, dump Yitzchak. He said, raise him up on the altar. He said, bring him back to heaven. Send him back to heaven. So what was Avraham supposed to say? I want to go too. If he goes, I go. You can't invite yourself to heaven. He wasn't invited. So Yitzchak wasn't being dumped. He was being taken to heaven. That's very different from the story with Moshe. When God came to Moshe and said, I'm dumping the people, he didn't mean I'm taking them to heaven. He meant I'm abandoning them in the desert. And Moshe said, well, then I go with them. And we don't find anywhere, in any of the commentaries, in any of the Midrashim, we don't find anywhere that God was annoyed with Moshe. I kind of suspected or expected God to be annoyed. I mean, here he talks to the people, tells them not to make graven images, but they don't listen. They go ahead and they make a graven image. So now God comes to the one man, to the one guy he can talk to, and he says, I'm going to dump them, and he gets an argument from him too. You dump them, you got to dump me. 
Why wasn't God upset? Can't get any cooperation from anybody. God wasn't angry. On the contrary, that's exactly what God hoped Moshe would say. That's what he expected Moshe to say. That's what Moshe was supposed to say according to God's standards of commitment and devotion and concern for your fellow Jew. So these women, they find an inspiration. They found an excitement. They found the truth, a compelling lifestyle. And they got so excited that they were certain that just mentioning it is going to excite their husbands. And the husbands are also going to want to do the mitzvahs. But it doesn't work that way. What they needed to do is to convince their husbands that this excitement that they have and this commitment that they've made to mitzvahs and to God has not replaced him, the husband, hasn't displaced him. He still comes first. He is still the husband. Why? Because that's what God wants. So it's not a choice. God or your husband. God wants you to choose your husband. Now that kind of love, the love that says, if you mess up, if you get into trouble, in whatever way, then I'm in trouble with you. That's not just a pleasant kind of love or a pleasurable love. It's much richer. It's a much stronger love. It compels action. It compels a certain behavior. Because just being content to be in love is not the whole story. There's more to love than that. So what happens when two Jews get married? There are subjective feelings that come and go, rise and fall, excitement, boredom. Sometimes, some moments, you can't believe how lucky you are. And sometimes you wonder if this is all there is to life. Sometimes you feel high and giddy in the relationship, and sometimes it's okay but not necessarily exciting. And those are subjective feelings, as feelings should be. There's also an objective reality to love that doesn't come and go. It's not that fickle. It's more stable, more permanent. It's the commitment, the devotion. It's the fact that you are no longer single. And that doesn't change from day to day. The fact that you're a couple doesn't change from day to day. You're not more of a couple one day and less of a couple the next. There's a consistency, which is an objective reality, stronger, firmer than our subjective feelings, if maybe not so exciting. Now, how exactly does a relationship between two strangers turn into this kind of oneness or this kind of, of objective reality? It's somewhat of a mystery. We've not yet discovered a really convincing explanation or answer to this question. You've got two people, strangers for the first half of their lives, quarter of their lives, they get together, and by free choice, voluntarily, they decide to share a life. And so they get married. Now, how does this completely subjective decision or choice create an objective reality that is stronger and bigger than both of them? How does this happen? People say that divorce is like an amputation. It's a, it's a pretty appropriate description. But how does this happen? How does it become an amputation? They're still two separate people, so why can't they just go their separate ways? Why is it an amputation? 
Now, it's true, of course, a couple, having been married, have invested deeply in the relationship. You have a lot of memories, a lot of feelings that you can't take back. But to call it an amputation? So we see that somehow marriage, that bond which is created voluntarily, gets out of control and beyond your choice. You lose control. Once you've stood under the chuppah, all voluntary or volitional behavior is gone. Now you have no choice. You're not just you anymore. It's not subjective anymore. It has become an objective reality. This is your wife, and this is how you have to treat her. And what if you don't want her to be your wife? Well, then you have to have an amputation. Because something happens under the chuppah. We come in to the chuppah thinking we have freedom of choice. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. No more freedom. It's a very powerful thing. That is the love that is compelling. Not the love that is pleasurable. The love that is pleasurable you give as a gift whenever you choose to, to whomever appeals to you. You share that kind of love like a present. Not that you should be frivolous with it, but it's yours to give as you choose. This other kind of love doesn't have that freedom of movement, that looseness. The other kind of love, once given, is out of your control. Or maybe it wasn't in your control at all, ever. Maybe that's not the kind of love that you can choose to give. It's the kind of love that happens when it's supposed to, and not when you feel like it, not when you choose. Something destined, bashert, some kind of soul twins that find each other, drawn to each other by some higher force. And then when you marry, you are joined by some higher force. An objective reality takes over. Maybe that's why we sometimes find ourselves married to a person we can't live with, literally cannot live with, and end up divorced. Why would that happen? Because it's not like people sit there thinking, I made a mistake. What was I thinking when I married this person? What was I, drunk? That's not true at all. The kind of love that ends up in marriage was really not the kind of love that you gave by choice because it was never under your control. There was some kind of destiny here. There was some kind of purpose here. And there was no way that you could have prevented it. So you don't kick yourself. And that's why when it happens with a person that you get along with, it is a marriage, not a friendship. And if it has to end... It's an amputation. Not just by the party's over. It's an amputation. So the respect that we have for marriage has got to be much greater, much bigger, much more real. If this is believable, it has to be more important than the respect we have for our own feelings, for our own emotions. We're so protective of our emotions. We should be much more respectful and much more protective of the state of marriage. So when a person says, I'm in an abusive relationship, he doesn't treat me right, he makes fun of me. I'm not talking about criminal abusive behavior, just insensitive behavior. But that kind of complaint doesn't treat me right, he's insensitive, he makes fun of me. That's nothing compared to the truth and the strength and the power of this reality condition that you created when you got married. Because what's hurting is only that pleasant love, the voluntary love that comes and goes. So it felt good, now it doesn't feel good. But what's in place what now exists is that other love that is an attachment, a commitment, 
a dedication, a compelling oneness that is beyond our control. And that's not hurting. I think the closest thing we can come to as a parallel is maternal love. Maternal love is not only a pleasant one, although it can be and it should be, but that's not what it really is. Maternal love is a bond, it's a commitment, a devotion that leads mothers to sacrifice their health and their lives and their happiness and everything, anything, for the children. So maternal love, I think, is a close example of that aspect of married love which is involuntary, the compelling one. And it's that love which enables us to overcome impossible odds in the relationship. So what happens when this love takes over? You know the story of Rabbi Akiva and his wife Rachel. They had a wonderful marriage. That's what we're told. They had a wonderful marriage. I mean, except for the fact that he was away for 24 years. And when he came back, he was uh, at least uh, 64 years old. Other than that, they had a really wonderful marriage. Now, of course, the question is, if you can be away for 24 years, then what are you calling a marriage? What makes this a marriage? 24 years she lived alone with her children. 24 years her husband was not there. And those 24 years she was a married woman. Wasn't she? She was married. If she had, God forbid, had an affair, it would have been adultery because she is married. Now, she hasn't seen her husband in 23 and a half years. How married can she be? Of course, the answer is she's absolutely married. There is no other way to be married other than absolutely. There is no partial, a little more, a little less. You're either married or you're not. And she was married. But that seems to be a legal definition. What about her feelings? Even in her feelings, she had a wonderful marriage. Now, it's not for everybody. I'm not suggesting it. I, I, I don't think it's a good idea to be separated for 24 years in your marriage. It worked for them. But even in this exceptional circumstance, we need to understand what does that mean? What does it mean it worked? Rachel being who she was, Rabbi Akiva being who he was, had a wonderful marriage. What did the marriage consist of those 24 years when they were separated? Not the pleasurable part of the marriage, not necessarily the pleasant love of the marriage. It consisted of the fact that she had a husband for whom she was willing to do anything, everything. It's just that she didn't get a chance to do those things because he wasn't there and she didn't get to see him much. But she had a husband. The point is that from the moment she married him, she was never alone. She was lonely, but she was never alone. There was a person in this world who would die for her, who would get dumped with her if she had to get dumped, and there was a guy who she would get dumped for if he had to be dumped. She was, of course, missing the romantic side of marriage, but that doesn't make their marriage any less real. And that kind of bond, again, the closest example I can think of is, is like having a mother. Even if your mother lives on the other side of the world, you are not an orphan. You have a mother. You can't get to see her. She doesn't travel much. You're busy. But you have a mother. And what's that worth? What is that worth? How does the song go? More precious than all the jewels in the world. To have a mother, even if you can't talk to her, to have a wife is not a pleasure, it's a reality. So if you can't see your wife for 24 years, there is not much pleasure. 
So that dimension of the love was missing for those 24 years. But the deeper and stronger part of what marriage is, that love that is visceral, not romantic, that love they had. And that's what makes you married. That's what makes it more than a friendship. So when a woman comes home and says to her husband, you have to stop doing this or you have to start doing that, I found out, I'm excited, I'm religious now. That's not just an insult to his feelings or to his ego. You're not just denying him the pleasure of television on Shabbos or milk in his coffee after a meat meal. What you're threatening, what you're overlooking, is that deeper part of the marriage, the part that makes it an objective reality. So when you come in, and you suggest, unspoken, between the lines, you suggest that if I have to dump you, then that's what I'll do, because I'm religious now. That doesn't threaten his feelings. That threatens his marriage, his being married. That's like threatening an amputation. And how is he supposed to be comfortable with that? So if you talk to these husbands, and you say, Come on, be a little flexible. It's true that they're a little pushy, but you can understand. They got excited, they're inspired. Play along. Don't be so egotistical. But that would be wrong. It's not their ego. You can't just say, come on, make your wife happy. That's not the issue. Any husband would make his wife happy. The issue is, are you amputating me? At least... In theory, am I now dumpable? Because if God said dump him, I'm dumped. If that's the case, then in principle, we're no longer married. This is not a marriage. And they would be right. And the same would be true if the husband came home all inspired and the wife didn't want to go along with it. So here's the dimension of relationship that we haven't talked of before. The part of the relationship that goes beyond feelings, it goes into being. It's not what I feel, it's what I am. I am a husband. And if you threaten amputation, I can't be calm about it. And from that kind of love, we get the durability, the endurance of the relationship, that it overcomes, it outlasts, it outlives difficulties, ugly times, nasty times. Because it's out of your control. It's bigger than you. And so it carries you, even when you can't carry it. When your emotions collapse, it remains steady. There's one more story, which may not be relevant, but it's, it's such a good story, I don't care. <laughs> it's a story you probably heard, but I just want to bring out this point. It's the story of Ariel Sharon with the Devon. He was visiting with the Deb, and uh, at the end of the visit, where they discussed all sorts of uh, military strategy, security issues for Israel, and so on, this was before he was prime minister. This was while he was still a famous general. I think it was back in the 70s. When they had finished talking, the Deb said to him, so when are you returning to Israel? And he said, whatever, uh, Tuesday. And the Rebbe said, so soon, why don't you stay a little longer? And Sharon was very uh, complimented and uh, thanked the Rebbe for his concern, but uh, he had to get back and he was going to take the flight. And on his way back to the hotel room in Manhattan, he tells his uh, cousin who was driving him, or a nephew, he says, you know, the Rebbe is such a gentleman. He's so nice. He's so kind, and he, he tells me to stay a little longer. And his nephew says, if the Rebbe said to stay a little longer, he wasn't just being polite or friendly, it means that you should stay. And Sharon decided to stay. Took a flight a few days later. Turns out that the flight that he was scheduled to be on was hijacked to Algeria. 
It was a mystery in the papers. Nobody knew exactly what the purpose of that hijacking was. The hijackers made no demands, and after 24 hours, they let everybody go. But that's not the part of the story I want to tell you. The part of the story is that two years later, a rabbi from England was visiting with the Rebbe. And he said, a chassid probably wouldn't ask this question, but I'm not a chassid, so I'm going to ask. I heard that the Rebbe told Sharon not to get on a plane, and the plane was hijacked. My question is, if the Rebbe knew that the plane was going to be hijacked, why save only Sharon? Why not save everyone? Why not call the airlines and cancel the flight altogether? Here's the Rebbe's answer. The Rebbe said to him, when I'm speaking with another Jew, I am obsessed with the desire to do him a favor. What can I do to help this person? And it is out of that desire that the words come. So the Rebbe was basically saying, I didn't know that the plane was going to be hijacked. I said, don't go out of a desire to help him, to do him a favor. It's what made me say what I said. And again, what can we compare this to? A mother's intuition. You know, like when a mother says, don't go. She doesn't know why she doesn't want you to go. She has this, this intuitive feeling. It's that kind of love that is much more than romantic love. It's a compelling love. It brings the right words. It makes you know things that you, you have no business knowing. It's a maternal love. It works for you more than you work for it. And we need to respect that. We need to talk it up. We need to focus on that and celebrate that. Instead, we often get the opposite. That kind of a commitment gets ridiculed. You can't go because your wife won't go? Aren't you denying yourself? No, it's the exact opposite. That's what compelling love is all about. It makes me do things sometimes beyond my control, but it's always good. So we might say that when the Rebbe was standing at the cemetery and suddenly he thinks of the grandfather, it wasn't voluntary. When the Rebetzin stopped and said, let's see what's going on there, it wasn't voluntary. It was compelling. You can't drive by and not help. And that's the real thing.